Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Causes or Cures. I'm Dr. Eeks, your host. Thanks so much for joining in. This will be the first Causes or Cures podcast of 2023. How about that? Um, it started out as a really small podcast, and then during the pandemic, it grew a lot. So here we go. I'm going to keep doing it, have a, a great lineup for 2023 so far. So hope you guys stick around. Um, for the regular listeners, you guys know that I featured several experts and people to talk about different elements of the pandemic. And it's interesting to do that in real time because, uh, well, it was a new virus. It still is. We're still learning so much about it. It's still very much the new kid on the block and information changes a lot or gets updated. So you have to keep changing the messaging and, um, updating people, (laughs) Uh, some of some of my podcasts probably need to be updated too, but you know we can graciously accept that information will change over time as we learn more. But no one likes that though, and we're not good at communicating uncertainty or accepting uncertainty. We want specific, concrete answers to help us understand the world around us and make us feel comfortable. And people want to give us answers too, so we don't grumble and complain and tell them they don't know anything. Uncertainty is uncomfortable, really. So no one wants that, even when it's the closest thing to the truth. Um, I always say answers sometimes are like a drug for people. They help us, you know, continue on in our world and, oh, we know everything and this is it and that's it and yeah, 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 let's go shopping or something, whatever. But, um, but you know, that's not how uh, information flows during a pandemic, uh, it changes quite a bit. Anyhow, moving on to the topic of the day. Today, I will be chatting with Dr. Rachel Stein about the Amish community and the pandemic. So another pandemic related topic, but a really unique and interesting one, and about a community that a lot of people don't really know much about. Dr. Stein is an associate professor of sociology and anthropology at West Virginia University. Her research focuses mostly on community building and health in old order Amish communities. She has a lot of great studies published, some of which I read to prepare for this podcast, and I will include a link to her webpage, which includes her bio publications and current projects if you guys are interested. Today on this podcast, what are we going to talk about? (laughs) So she is going to tell us how she became interested in studying the Amish community more specifics about the Amish community, their values and way of life, how they responded or changed their way of life during the pandemic, any risk-reducing strategies they used, their excess death rate during the pandemic, their views on preventive medicine and vaccination in general, and then we will specifically talk about their views on the COVID-19 vaccine. We will talk about where they get their health information from and any issues with misinformation. And for the record, I know information is constantly changing, just said that earlier, and there is ongoing debates about certain things, which is fine. That's the whole point of a democracy. It's messy debates, right? Right? You don't need a First Amendment for speech everyone agrees with. (laughs) Um, No, you need it for the messy stuff, the things where there's lots of disagreement. Um, that's, That's really what that amendment's for. So messy debates, that's what we should expect with a democracy, and that's okay. Messy scientific debates in this case. 
But for the purpose of this podcast, let's say misinformation is something that is definitely wrong. Like 99.999% of experts say, yeah, that's, that's wrong. Um, for example, inhaling steam for 30 minutes every two hours will cure COVID. Um, I actually saw a video of a guy saying that early on in the pandemic, I think it was on Facebook and people were sharing it and, you know, and probably running to their kitchens to boil a pot of water, um, and inhale steam. Now I inhale steam. I like it. Um, it, I do facials that way. I think it helps with, uh, maybe helps me breathe a little better sometimes, but does it cure COVID? No, no, it doesn't. So stuff like that for the sake of this podcast is misinformation, okay? And then we will talk about the Amish lifespan, which is really interesting and things that they value that might give them a health advantage. Things that maybe, you know, the mainstream society doesn't value as much. All right, guys, so let's kick off 2023 Causes or Cures podcast season. Uh, Let's connect to Dr. Rachel Stein and hear what she has to say. Okay, everybody, we are connected to Dr. Rachel Stein on the line here. Thank you so much, Rachel, for joining in. Um, So this, we're going to talk about uh, the Amish community, maybe the Mennonite communities. Um, I was, I was reading through a lot of your papers um, and I was, particularly, I've always been interested in how these communities were um, responding during the pandemic um, and, you know, the different public health guidance that was out there. Um, So I really enjoyed going through some of your studies, but before we kind of dive into the questions, do you mind telling us a little bit about you and how did you get interested in these communities and studying this kind of work? Sure. Um, So I am actually from Holmes County, Ohio. Um, I grew up in, well, really close to Holmes County, and Holmes County is uh, arguably one of the largest Amish settlement, Um, the largest Amish settlement. There's sort of a competition between Holmes County and Lancaster County in Pennsylvania. Uh, So I grew up like right on the edge um, of a very large Amish settlement. And growing up, being around the Amish was very normal to me. Um, And then when I moved away from home, and people found out that I was interested in the Amish, um, they would ask me a lot of questions. And I realized that I I knew a lot less than I thought I did. Um, And so uh, being a sociologist, um, I thought, well, this is interesting, right? Like this is a really interesting culture and perhaps I might uh, might learn more um, about this culture. And so um, it didn't happen until almost 10 years after I moved away from home Um, But I eventually circled back around and studying the Amish was almost like coming home to me. Um, So that's sort of how I landed back here. Interesting. I grew up in Pennsylvania and I so and I uh, played on a soccer team. We would always go to Lancaster County. um, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's always been just so fascinating. what this, you know, the odd thing that I, the one thing I remember the most, this is going to, this might sound crazy, but the clotheslines always enamored me mm-hmm. because they were, they looked so perfect. Right. Um, yeah. Like acts of meditation or something um, <laughs> compared to like, you know, our clothesline in our backyard, which was a mess, but um, I was like, wow, these are, this is amazing. Um, So 
Well, well, we're thinking about, you know, like the, the pandemic here and there was all these, you know, recommendations, um, some mandates, I suppose, you know, social distancing, stay at home orders. And as, as I was reading your one paper on how the, uh, the Amish and, and the Mennonite communities responded, um, a lot of it has to, to do, a lot of it has to go back to you know, I, th I feel like their core values and kind of like what they value, how they view the government's role um, versus, you know, uh, religion. So can you maybe talk about that? Like what the background, basically, if that makes yeah, sense. I, okay. Let me start talking and you, you can tell me if I'm on track or not. Okay. That's <laughs> perfect. <laughs> I love this setup. Okay. <laughs> Um, so I'll just, I'll start with sort of a disclaimer. Um, in a lot of my work, we talk about the Amish and the Mennonites, right? Uh, we, we focus more yeah. so on, um, old order Mennonites in a lot of our work. Um, but I just, I want to sort of start by saying that like, when we focus on these groups, like the Amish are, are not all the same, right? And so a lot of times when we talk about the Amish, we assume it's like this large group and all the people within the Amish are the same. And that's simply not true. Um, and so we make sort of a lot of generalizations so we can easily, more easily talk about these things. Okay. Um, but within the Amish, there's lots of distinctions as well. Right. And so there's lots of different affiliations across Amish and lots of uh, distinctions across Mennonites as well. Um, but when we talk about them more generally, we talk about like the Amish and the Mennonites. So that that's my disclaimer. <laughs> enough, good. Yeah, fair enough. Absolutely. And so the the Amish and the Mennonites um, more broadly, right, come from the Anabaptist tradition. Um, and so this dates back to like 16th century Europe. Uh, they the Amish or the Anabaptist groups were not happy uh, with what was going on in religion and they ended up splitting off. Um, they're actually called the Anabaptists because they believe in adult baptism, um, which was very different um, than uh, Christian churches at the time, right, who were baptizing babies. Um, so Amish believe that that people should have the choice to join the church. Um, and they also believed in the separation of church from state, right? And so the state had a pretty powerful influence over churches during that time. Um, and the Amish were interested in sort of uh, separating the two out. And so those two components are, remain important for both the Amish and the Mennonites today, um, the separation of church and state, and also the belief in adult baptism, right? And so people should be able to choose to join the community. Um, the separation of church and state is relevant when we start thinking about COVID. Um, the Amish do believe in government, and they do believe in listening to government leaders. Uh, you, you can read about how um, like Amish respect the leaders, and they believe um, that the leaders are there for a purpose, right? And a lot of times Amish will pray for uh, community government leaders. Um, but, I mean, so they, they do believe in government, right? Um, but they generally don't take part in government. Um, and so they aren't actively involved, uh, in any government sort of issues, uh, except for maybe like local issues, but they generally make that distinction, right? They aren't interested in becoming involved in politics, et cetera. Um, and so when COVID happened, right, at least in the United States, um, it became very 
political pretty quickly. Um, so we talk yeah. about <laughs> we talk about that a lot in our research, right? Um, which which complicates some of the the reactions to COVID. Um, but government, the government was putting out these initiatives, right, about social distancing, about masking. Um, and I mean, in general, people didn't know whether or not to believe them for a lot of different reasons, right? Guidelines were always changing and then things were political, et cetera, et cetera. And I would say that the Amish aren't that much different from everybody else in society, right? Um, sort of what do we believe? How do we know that that's that's the right thing to do, right? Um, but for the most part, I mean, the Amish sort of continued doing what they do, right? And so um, things that are important to them, things like the community, um, things like seeing one another, right? Things like uh, community support and, and talking to one another in the, in the community, those things remained important through COVID. And so you see a lot of Amish and Mennonite communities who didn't follow the guidelines, Right. They didn't um, they didn't follow social distancing. They didn't follow masking uh, at the onset of the pandemic. There were restrictions on um, like number of gatherings. Yeah, we see sort of um, varied adherence <laughs> to the, those sorts of guidelines as well. Um, yeah. And I, I think a lot of it is because like their culture is so focused on community. Right. That that's sort of what they value. Um, and so they continue to do what they value. And the, yeah, and that makes sense. So in one of your studies, you uh, analyzed, uh, I guess, entries by scribe entries. Mm -hmm. Is that the best way uh, from the budget? Now, now, the budget is like the news, uh, the, the Amish newspaper. Is that mm -hmm. okay? Um, that and then there was another one I think I mentioned maybe in another paper the diary are those the two the two biggest ones those are two of the biggest yeah mm -hmm. okay okay um and you were kind of looking to see th that's how you were uh I guess assessing whether or not there was any kind of change behavior um but can you can you tell us a little bit like I thought that was interesting like the budget because people mm -hmm. don't you know because like where are people getting their health information from for example um, or what's, what is influencing people is all, is part of kind of public health and how people respond. Um, so can you just t tell us a, a, a little bit about that? What is that, the budget? Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> so I didn't really realize that the budget was like a weird thing until I moved away because we grew up like in our house, we <laughs> got the budget, right? And it was just part of, part of uh, yeah. news that came to our, into our home. Um, <laughs> and so both the budget and the diary uh, we can talk about them as Amish correspondence newspapers. And to sort of make se sense of that, um, I'll talk just a little bit about how the budget was formed. Um, the guy who first started the budget, he started it as a local newspaper um, in Sugar Creek, Ohio. And then he had some, some Amish friends who moved out of the community. Um, and when they moved out of the community, they would send him letters to stay in touch, right? And they would tell him, um, like, this is what's going on in our, our new community. And he ended up publishing those in the budget. And that was sort of like the beginning of the budget, right? And so uh -huh. people from different communities, uh, we call them scribes, um, they write 
into the budget, right? And they submit their letters and basically they just talk about what's going on in their community. Um, and so now the budget represents probably uh, five to 600 communities across the United States. And there's some international communities as well. And it's just people, scribes, writing in and they talk about um, news in the community, like what's going on. And same with the diary. And they, um, make, they just mail their letters in. They just mail their letters in. Wow. Um, they either like snail mail, uh, yeah. they can fax them. And okay. more and more, uh, there are Amish who email them as well, right? Like if they work at a business where there's a computer or something like that, they can email them. Okay. Okay. I was curious about that. So, <laughs> so some, some use email, some don't, I guess. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then I read, um, they, in, uh, well, I guess, you know, March 2020 or, um, around there, March, uh, they, the budget did publish the CDC guidelines. Is that right? That is right. Mm -hmm. And okay. so one of the, let me, let me talk about this just for a second. Uh, one of the things that makes the Ohio Amish community interesting slash unique um, is that they have a, a steering committee. Um, and so the steering committee is made up of leaders within the Amish community. Uh, the steering committee doesn't really have any power. <laughs> um, they're more like just a, a body of people who can like meet and discuss if there are any issues or like when COVID hit, right, they can provide guidance to the community, things like that. Um, but the steering committee doesn't really have any like real power over any of the Amish community. Um, but when COVID hit, uh, the Amish steering committee actually supported uh, the CDC recommendations and the budget um, newspaper published the CDC guidelines and there was an endorsement from the, the Ohio Amish Steering Committee um, also published in the budget, right, where they were saying that um, communities should follow these guidelines. Um, hmm, interesting, okay. And, and then when you were going through the, um, the budget um, and, and you mentioned this before it, it's when they said to kind of um you know like worship worship remotely we all heard that if we were yes. religious um but I, I was thinking about that too it was like yeah we were like that ad advice really didn't consider uh these closed re religious communities right. um um but they did make some some it, it sounded like some people did make some changes to their church service or mm -hmm. the the dinners that followed yeah yes so um, Amish church services in general, um, they can differ across affiliations, but in general, the service starts in the morning and goes all morning, um, several hours, right? And then after the service, it's lunchtime and everybody gathers um, for lunch. The, uh, the church services take place in somebody's house. Um, and so most Amish affiliations don't have like church buildings. Um, Mennonites generally do, um, but when Amish are meeting for church, they're meeting in somebody's house, right? And so like they bring benches in and like everybody goes into the house to have these three hour services, um, which when you think about it, right at the beginning of COVID, when there's sort of a, an emphasis on like, you need to social distance and you need to mask, right? Um, that looks different in a church building versus somebody's house, right? <laughs> um, and so- yeah. Uh, so 
there were some Amish congregations who did not follow the guidelines, right? They kept a meeting. And so like they would gather in people's houses. There were some districts who, who stopped meeting and they would use conference lines. And so like these are telephone lines that you could call into um, and listen to a preacher. And I didn't, we didn't look at this specifically, um, but we were talking to other people who were looking at this, right? And some of the conference lines were so overloaded right? That people couldn't actually call in because like the, there were so many people trying to call in to listen um, to these preachers talk, right? Um, And that was sort of like their only way to, to connect with people, right? Is to to call into these conference lines. Um, And then some church districts just like canceled services. And so there was no sort of meeting whatsoever. Now, when you start talking about like you get into Mennonite um, Mennonite groups, there were Mennonites who were able to like use Zoom and so more like non-Amish people, right? There were um, there were Zoom, Zoom meetings and then we read about a couple of districts uh, where they would gather in the parking lot, right? And then like the, the preacher would, like they would have outside services, right? And so people would drive into the, to the outside services. Now in general, um, the Amish don't really use cell phones or Zoom at all, or are there some groups that do? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it gets more complicated as the years go by. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so if we were having this conversation like 20 years ago, I could tell you with pretty great confidence that like Amish don't really use cell phones. Um, but you see as cell phones become more and more popular um, that there are some Amish who use them. A lot of churches have restrictions on how Amish can use cell phones. And so a lot of Amish men who work outside the home work in businesses and they have a cell phone for their business. Um, And so in a lot of churches, that's okay, right? It's okay to have a cell phone for your business. Um, There are some churches who then sort of require the phone to stay out of the home um, or only be used for business purposes, things like that. Um, so cell phones are sort of creeping into <laughs> the Amish community. Um, and there's some some folks out there who are looking at this and sort of looking at the impact, right? And then there's some church districts who are sort of okay, right? Or maybe a little bit more flexible with cell phones as long as they don't have internet connectivity. Um, and so like if it's just used for a phone, that's okay. But like drawing the line at being able to connect to the internet um, and then, as I mentioned before, right, um, some Amish folks who work outside the home, they work in businesses that have computers, right? And so they have access to email, things like that. Um, but generally not not in the home. Not in the home. Right. Um, it sounds kind of nice. Like, just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like getting away from the phone forever. Uh, I never, you know, it just it sounds like a peaceful lifestyle to me. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, I found interesting as I was reading for some of your papers, um, uh, you know, kind of like it was the, like the Christian nationalist or the white evangelical Protestants were the most likely religious groups to not want to follow the public health guidance or re- recommendations, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was kind of important to point out, but their reasoning was um, different. Right. It was, it, is that right? Yes. Yes. This is one thing that we we have always tried to be really um, careful 
when we were writing. <laughs> and so, um, I mean, the stuff that we have done on looking at the Amish population in COVID, uh, people weren't doing it yet, right? Um, but people were looking at Christian nationalists and COVID and some of the resistance there, right? And so we drew on that literature to sort of talk about how these closed religious communities were resisting some of the, the COVID guidelines. Um, but we try to be really careful because the Amish are different, right? And they have sort of different motivations than Christian nationalists for um, like refusing some of the guidelines, right? And so we see more politically oriented sorts of things with Christian nationalists than we do with the Amish. But there, I mean, there are some similarities, right? When we talk about closed religious communities, right? And and uh, sort of emphasizing communication within the groups, right? And so there, there are some similarities, but there are also some really, really important differences. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and it seemed like uh, in terms of like the, the social bonds in the community, like the, that was so important to the Amish, whereas I didn't uh that may that may not have been like a top reason for some of the other religious groups right yeah and that that's one thing that we keep coming back to in our research right is the, the importance of community the importance of family mm -hmm. right the yeah. importance of connections amongst the Amish which um I believe is driving a lot of the behavior yeah yeah um you also looked at excess death which I thought was interesting there's a lot of talk about excess death right now um you know, due to the pandemic, which um, I always mess this up, but it's the uh, observe the difference of between the observed deaths and what you expect in a given time period. Did I say that right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Um, so, what did you learn there in the um, about the excess death rate in the Amish or Mennonite communities? compared to, um, I guess, the national average or national rate? Yes. So let me talk for a minute about um, our work that has been published, and then I can talk for a minute about where we are going with our work. Awesome. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> so when we looked at excess death, um, so the, our paper that is published, we looked at the year 2020. And we actually used the budget newspaper uh, to capture death. And we looked at, we coded obituaries that were published in the budget. And so, first of all, we recognize that the obituaries that are published in the budget do not represent all Amish. Um, and so it is like the, the readership of the budget that is, that is represented there. Um, but it's a pretty good representation considering that um, there's not a really good way to capture excess death amongst the Amish, right? Or even COVID rates amongst the Amish because the Amish generally don't get tested for COVID, right? And if we look at death certificates, there's no way to tell if like it's an Amish person versus a non-Amish person. And so trying to capture this data um, becomes challenging. And so our, our solution to that was looking at obituaries in the budget newspaper. Um, and so we looked at uh, what the death rate was between 2015 and 2019. And that was our, our baseline deaths, right? And then we looked at what the death rate was in 2020. And we found that um, there were many more deaths in 2020 as compared to the, the baseline or the past five years. 
right? And so we see um, that there was a spike in deaths in March and April, like when the when COVID first hit the United States, right? We see that spike. Um, and then uh, we see like an extreme spike in November. It was like over 120% increase in deaths, right? As compared wow. to the past five years. Um, and so we make the argument in that paper, right? That, that Amish are indeed affected by COVID, right? And pretty tragically so, right? And, and then we link that back to um, like the, the daily routines and, and the rituals within the Amish community, right? Emphasizes that face-to-face -face contact with one another. And so if people are, are still like gathering and still meeting for church um, and then COVID is spreading within the community, right? And it creates these ideal situations for COVID to spread. Again, going back to like we talked about churches in the house, right? And so as people sort of cram into these houses for, for church service, it's it's an ideal way to, to get COVID sort of spread across the community. And we see that impact, right? Because the, the number of deaths um, is greatly increased in 2020 as compared to um, the baseline measure. And so uh, the other part of your question, you asked about um, how that compares to yeah. uh, like the, the US more broadly. And so that's what we're doing now. <laughs> um, um Okay. And so in, in our first paper, we were just looking at sort of the impact within the Amish community. And then we, we saw that the, the trend lines matched with infection rates in the U.S., right? And so like as infections went up, we saw excess death rates going up um, and the patterns matched pretty consistently all the way across 2020. And so now we're going back and we're looking at the past two years, we're looking at, at excess death amongst the Amish and then um, we're also looking at excess deaths within the U.S. population uh, to see if there's there's similarities across the two. And are you doing this um, for like the pre-vaccine period and the post-vaccine? So we actually, we do it across when vaccines were introduced. And if you look at the, the data for excess deaths in the United States, um, you can see like you can see when vaccines were introduced, <laughs> um, which is just really interesting, right? Because the excess deaths actually start to decline. And so vaccines were first available um, like end of December, beginning of January, and then they became more widely available at the, the front part of 2021, right? Like January, right, yeah, that's right. March, right? Yeah. yeah. When, when more people were getting vaccinated. And so you can see like in the United States, um, like during that time period, the number of excess deaths actually declines, right? Uh -huh. And so you, like, you can see the, the impact of vaccines, um, which is just really interesting, right? That the, the excess death rates are sort of reflecting what is going on in society. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. Um, that's, so that'll be interesting. So you're working on that research now, yes. which is kind of a good segue because my next question is about vaccines. Um, <laughs> And, and I read your paper published in the journal vaccine, right? Mm -hmm. I, okay, say that it was 2021. And you kind of were talking about um, vaccination patterns in general in the Amish community, I think uh, uh, the Ohio Amish community. Mm -hmm. um, so could we, maybe, can you just tell, like what are the Amish um, beliefs about vaccine, vaccine acceptance, um, mm -hmm. How do they feel about vaccines? And then we can tie it into maybe the COVID vaccines. Sure. Yeah. So 
my um, my argument <laughs> with vaccines has always been that the Amish are not that different from everybody else, right? And so you have um, Amish people who are completely on board with vaccines, right? They they get their children fully vaccinated, and then you have Amish people who are um, hesitant to get some of the vaccines, and so their children are partially vaccinated. And then you have Amish who are completely resistant to vaccines. Um, sounds sort of like the U.S. population, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> and so, I mean, I think one of the most interesting things about the Amish population, right, because a lot of times when we talk about the Amish, and you and I have even been talking about the Amish as a closed religious community, but when you talk to the Amish about, well, why don't you vaccinate or why do you only partially vaccinate, um, religion is, is not the reason, right? Um, the Amish will cite reasons similar to the U.S. population, right? Like we're afraid that, that too many vaccines at a young age will be harmful to the children or um, these diseases really aren't that serious and why should we vaccinate, right? Which is the same sort of thing you see in the, in the broader population. Um, and so you see, I mean, within the Amish, you see sort of different categories, but you see the same sorts of reasons um, being offered, right? Either for vaccinating or not vaccinating as is offered in the, the broader population. Um, right. And I think um, in the, in the paper you point, and you point this out too, there was uh, an increase or, or I'm sorry, a decrease in acceptance. And, and you see that too, um, uh, in, in the country, I think even internationally, we're seeing that. Right. Yeah. Um, so th the paper that we did um, for vaccines was actually in, in collaboration with a, a doctor from the New Leaf Center um, for Special Children. And wow. another doctor who works at that center um, did a study, I think almost a decade ago. Right. And they, I mean, they found that um, now versus a decade ago, the, the number of families who are vaccinating um, has decreased. Yeah. I, do, why, why do you know, uh, why do you think that is? That's a really good question. Um, uh, I mean, I think that, I think a lot of reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I don't think it's just the Amish. Uh, I no, think it's not. That, yeah. Right. That there's, um, I mean, I, I'm I'm reading a lot of other research right now, right? And so, like, some of the stuff that I'm seeing is, like, we don't. This this is actually becoming less true, which I I also think is interesting. But let me say this first: uh, like, we see less of these serious types of diseases in today's society than we have in the past, right? And so, since we don't, we generally the general we, right? Since we don't see them. Um, we may sort of forget how serious they are. Um, and we may yeah. not think that there's a, a really big need to vaccinate, right? Because we don't see these things anymore. And so what's the use of, of vaccinating healthy children, right? If we think that the, the perceived risk of getting these illnesses is low. Um, and so that could be part of it, right? Which then I think it's interesting that we see like some of these diseases pop popping up again. Right. Um, yeah. Which yeah. is just super interesting. Um, yeah. So I think that there's um, there's some of that. Right. There's uh, there's some distrust of medicine. Mm -hmm. 
right? Um, that you see sort of more of perhaps today than a decade or so ago, right? People sort of pushing back on the on the medical community or questioning science more broadly, right? Um, those, so I think there's some of that. And I think that like everything that happens in, in broader culture, right? I mean, the Amish are not isolated from that. Um, and so the Amish are absolutely affected by the culture in which they live, right? And so you see these th things happening in mainstream society and then you see it reflected in the Amish community as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. It makes sense. Um, and I think I read in that paper that you wrote, um, you, were, you wrote that 75% would reject the COVID vaccine due to fear of adverse um, reactions or adverse, I guess, effects, which I think is mirrors uh, the general population. Right. And that the survey for that paper went out like at the onset of COVID. And so that was before the vaccine oh. actually existed. Oh, um, okay. Yep. And so... <laughs> And so when they, when they did the survey, um, the survey wasn't supposed to be about COVID. <laughs> <laughs> it was just supposed to be about vaccines more generally. Yeah. Um, and then like, as they were getting ready to distribute the survey, then COVID hit. And so then they, they um, put on a question about COVID vaccines. And so again, like this was the onset of the pandemic, right? And yeah. um, lots and lots of people getting sick and there was talk of, like, well, what what if there is a development of a vaccine? And, and yeah. if there is, would you get it, right? And yeah. I think at that point, and then even as the vaccine was being developed, right, there was a lot of fear because yeah. this vaccine was developed so quickly and, and how can it be safe, And it, right? And so yeah. lots of questions surrounding that, again, within mainstream society and then also within Amish communities. Um, And I found the, these bits interesting those that would accept a vaccine, um, healthcare workers were their primary influence. Yes. And then the wives cited their spouses as the primary influence. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then the, and, the, and those that wouldn't, that rejected it, the bishops were the most influence. No, who's, uh, is the bishop like the the head guy? In the, yeah. Okay. Maybe the, the head of the church or the head, the head of, the of the church. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. So if they said you don't get it, that that's powerful, right? Got it. Yeah. Okay. So what do you know? What um, how did did the Amish end up getting the COVID vaccine? What any uh, did the rate mirror the general population? Do you know? Um, and so we don't know anything for certain. Um, because well, it's just it's hard to track, right? Yeah, um, I was but, say, I don't know how. I was thinking in my head, like, how do you like, track that? <laughs> Does that go in the budget? <laughs> but from from what we have done and what we have read, um, we suspect that most of the Amish have not gotten vaccinated. And this is actually related to a paper that we're working on, which I hope I can send to you soon. <laughs> um, but um, be, because COVID spread so much in the Amish community, sort of from early on, um, Amish communities were talking about herd immunity, right? Even like even 
Ah, okay. Like way early on in the pandemic, right? They were talking about herd immunity. And so sort of get this mindset of, well, if I've had it, why should I get a vaccine? Right. And so I think that that that's a piece of it. Right. Because so many people within the community got sick. Um, and so there is a question about, well, well, we've gotten sick. Right. We've had it. And so what's the use of getting a vaccine? Right. Um, and so I think that there was some of that going on. Um, but then I, I think, too, that there's just there's a lot of the distrust within the Amish community, too. Right. With the with how quickly the vaccine was developed. Um, and, uh, yeah, we just, we saw a lot of sort of reflection of, of the broader community <laughs> in, in how scribes were talking about the vaccine and, um, things related to the vaccine. And so we suspect that much of the Amish population has not actually been vaccinated. Um, mm, okay. Okay. Um, you know, I, 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 how would you create a, culturally competent vaccine outreach program for like the Amish community? Would you, it sounds really tough to do. Yes. Um, that's, we don't have a good answer. <laughs> mm. um, and even when you're looking at, you know, so we, you just mentioned that, that healthcare workers are the people that, um, some Amish folks are listening to in terms of getting vaccinated right? But the Amish are, in general, um, don't practice preventative medicine, and they don't have like a regular doctor that, that they go to, mm-hmm. right? I think about, um, you know, I, I have young children. And so, like, from the time they were born, like, we do our, our yearly yeah. well-child visit, right? Right. Like, I mean, we have a relationship with their pediatrician. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And it's just like, it's something that, that we just do, but that's not something that exists within the Amish community. Right. Mm-hmm. And we, we found that like the Amish folks or the Amish families who have had interactions with the new leaf center. Right. And so like, if they have a child who is getting treated there or being seen there, um, like they have built that trust with those doctors right? And they are more likely to listen to those doctors, which says, I mean, just so many positive things about the New Leaf Center. But like, that's such a small proportion of the Amish community, right? Who, who have that relationship with doctors. And um, most of the Amish folks aren't going to see doctors. And so how do you build a relationship with doctors when Amish don't go to doctors in general, right? Right. Um, it becomes really complicated. Yeah. And so, I mean, we do know that they, they listen to, to their bishop, right. Or they listen to um, prominent leaders within their community. Mm-hmm. And then the question becomes like, well, how do you get that information into the community? Right. Like, how do you, how do you communicate that? And I don't have a good answer. Um, I do know that like during COVID, um, like the local health departments were issuing guidelines for Amish communities, right? And so, um, like they were saying something about uh, like social distancing and what does that mean, right? Um, and some Amish families like either live with or live sort of connected to um, uh, like elderly people in their families. 
And so there's like always these, these family connections that are just outside your nuclear family, right? And so they were talking about like social distancing, what does that mean and who's included and what does it mean for people who live in, in these sorts of arrangements, and <laughs> right? But then how much are Amish actually following that? I don't know. I don't know. And how do you get them to follow that? I don't know. <laughs> right. And it's not like if you're um, not a member of the community, even though you're, I guess, you know, well-meaning or something, you're not, you're probably not going to be accepted or listened to. Right. I I, you can't just like walk in like, hey. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I mean, I think that that's another thing. And like, as an outsider yeah. who studies this group, um, like the, the sorts of things that happen, right? Like when people get sick um, or when people die, I mean, it's, it's terrible and it's a tragedy, tragedy, but uh, like it's, it's part of God's will, right? Mm. And like the, I think the community thinks about those sorts of things differently than mm. non-Amish people do. Right. And so, yeah as an outsider, you come in, right. And you have all these guidelines and you have these things because like, this is important and we need to stop the spread and we need to, we need to do all this. And then the question is why, <laughs> right? Like yeah. why? Like, this yeah. is just a, a part of life and, and people get sick and it, and it happens. Right. And then we just, we deal with that and then we move on. Um, and so I think that like just different mindsets and it's hard to sort of wrap our head around that as an outsider. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, and, and mask wearing, that was probably not, mm -hmm. did, did that happen? No, not, no. no. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, and we had so many mask wars and, you know, yes, <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. That's still happening. It's still happening. The like mask actually, uh, when I was the, one of the, the earlier podcasts I did in the pandemic was on face mask and I've never received so much hate mail just for interviewing <laughs> a researcher in Hong Kong. I mean, people were like, you're Satan. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. This was about <laughs> face masks. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that was my introduction to how, uh controversial things were gonna be right I don't make any money from this podcast okay like I'm back <laughs> off everyone <laughs> yeah I mean it's, it's wild right and so my parents still live up in Amish country yeah. and um like my family and I live in the in a college town right Okay. And so like when the masking mandates came out, like we were all masked here, right? Like yeah. the whole town, right? Like everybody yeah. was sort of on board with the masking. We were masking everywhere we went, right? Every, everybody's doing it, right? Yeah, same, same here. Yeah. I'm, I'm right. in New York City now. Yeah. So yes, right. Yeah. Yeah. And we went up to visit my parents and we went somewhere with my dad and we went out. Um, and so like a primarily Amish event, right? And we went into this place and like, nobody was masked. It was like, it was weird. Right. Yeah. Because we had sort of gotten used to yes. like when you go out in public, like you just, you put on a mask and yeah. everybody else that you see is masked. Right. And it just sort of became part of like what we do. And then we like travel three hours away and it's like a whole different world. Yeah. It was wild. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, the mask. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
gosh, misinformation. Uh, I, I, a couple of things you've written, um, you, you say that that could be a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do you combat that? What, what do you, what do you, I mean, and also like, I, I want to be clear here too, because like, you know, this was a very different time and, you know, like it's a pandemic and we're just getting evidence in and it was changing. And I don't necessarily think we did the best job um, with communication, you know, or people kind of got, oh, it's like this and it's going to be like this forever. And they're like, then something changes, right? Because you're, the virus changes and it's new and you have to adapt and try to communicate uncertainty to people, which, <laughs> and nobody likes uncertainty. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, and we, everybody's talking in the public health community, like misinformation is this huge problem. And I'm kind of like sitting there in these meetings sometimes. And I'm like, well, everybody has the internet. So <laughs> what did you, you think was going to happen? Um, <laughs> but that's not the case with the Amish. They, that not all of them, at least a, a good proportion, don't have the internet, don't want the internet. Um, but they still have, they still struggle with misinformation. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So what, yeah, what's, what's the story with that? Yeah. So we've, we've talked about this sort of within our group and we've also talked to, um, like other Amish scholars who are, are studying this. Um, but it's, it's really interesting, right? Because we see like clear examples of misinformation. Um, just like, for example, when the pandemic first started, like there were, um, sort of these ideas on like how COVID could be cured, right? And whether through like herbal sorts of things or I mean, whatever, right? But like none of it true, right? There's like, there's no, there's no cure and there was no cure in April, <laughs> right? Um, right. But, but people are, yeah. right, people are writing about like these sorts of things that, that will make COVID go away, right? And so you see this sort of happening but again, it's not it's not specific to the Amish, right? Like it's not just the Amish who are talking about these things. But we were sort of thinking about like, well, as you said, right? People are on the internet and they're getting lots of information from the internet and the Amish are not on the internet. So how are they getting their information? Um, and so even though we talk about the Amish as a like a closed community, they are certainly not cut off from the non-Amish, right? And so a lot of... Amish men work outside the home and they work like right alongside non-Amish people. And so they're sort of exposed to whatever the non-Amish people are talking about, right? And if the non-Amish people have access to the internet and are talking about these sorts of things, right? Um, they're they're hearing that from them. And we also, uh, we've also talked to folks about um, so the Amish get from place to place largely by horse and buggy, right? Mm, but right. let's say you want to take a, a shopping trip somewhere and it's it's further than you want to go with a horse and buggy. And so you hire a van, right? And in that van, like, first of all, you have a van driver who is non-Amish, right? And so both women and men who are in this van are likely talking to the van driver and so you're getting the van driver's opinion. And then what is the van driver listening to on the radio? Right? Um, uh-huh. Okay. Becomes a good question, right? And so like, if they're listening to like AM talk radio, right? Like what what source of information um, are the passengers hearing sort of as they're, as they're out and about interacting with non-Amish people? And 
Yeah. And so, I mean, they're, they're getting information from the outside world. Right. And so it may not be the Amish person who is on the internet, like Googling things, but they are absolutely talking to, to people who are. And I guess they don't have like their own form of fact checkers. Like we, we have like fact checking site, you know, um, right. Which, and I, I kind of am like, because the internet, you know, there's so much out there on the internet and it's almost like I tell people like we got to find another way to um, do this because I feel like you know people are like mon- monitoring multiple sites and then people you know set up a website somewhere else and it's just too big you know it's like a so it's, it's its own galaxy you can't do that. I think we have to like teach people how to communicate like critically think critically listen to each other I I don't know right um, yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's part of the problem too, right? Within a community like the Amish, right? And so let's say you go somewhere with a van driver, just for example, right? Or yeah. maybe you hear something from a coworker, yeah. right? And you go home and you tell your wife about like this thing that you've heard. And then your wife tells her sister and then her <laughs> sister tells, right? And then yeah. it just, uh, we, we've used uh, like the term echo chamber, yes. right? Within these Amish communities, right? Because the information comes in. And then it gets passed along and at no point can like somebody go jump on Google and see, (laughs) right? Like I heard this, is it really true? Right. And so you're, you're sort of missing that element. Yeah. And then like, once it, once it gets going, like, how do you stop it? Right. Because the misinformation sort of gets in and it starts bouncing around. Yeah. And there's, there's no one to like say, okay, wait, wait a minute. Right. What's, what's the counter to this? Yeah, no, it's it's extremely hard. Um, and, and, you know, something, and the more provocative something sounds, um, you know, and I always tell people this, like, you know, you can have a boring anecdote that's probably shared by multiple people and it's just not going to go anywhere because right. it's so boring, but it's the majority. But then, you know, you have one that's like, you know, wow, my goodness, I can't believe that happened. That's the story you're going to tell. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, and we like to... <laughs> Right. I mean, well, you know, we all like, like if you're going, if you go out to a bar or a restaurant, like you want to tell the provocative story, like that's what you want to hear. It's like human right. nature almost. Um, yep. But it's not, yeah, it's, it's not uh, scientific, so to speak, but um, I don't know. That's just what we talk about. That's right. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. It's funny though. I mean, I have people will send me videos, like crazy stuff and I can't keep up and they're like, is this true? And I'm like, ah, I, I didn't watch the whole thing, but I don't think so. <laughs> it's like Constantly. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just, there's so much out there. Um, and then nobody trusts the, um, you know, like in terms of credible sites and, and uh, you'll be like, oh, well, this is from, they're like, where's that from? And you'll be like, well, I got it from here. And like, don't trust those people. So I don't even know, you know, it's like totally, you have to almost then, okay, find somebody that that person trust and then get that person as the messenger. But then once that messenger delivers a message they don't like, they might be written off, you know? That's right. Yes. I, so yes. I don't, I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> right. And, and people will seek out, right? Like, and so if you have a certain opinion, like people will seek out, yes things to support that opinion right yes 100 percent. yes um i i and like i've hosted um a couple guest podcasts for a show and i just i don't like i just say you know what i as i interpret things i'm not i don't take a side in anything I, that's just not my nature 
but you really have no friends because everybody wants you just to kind of support what they're, you know, thinking or what they believe or their view of the world. And unless you do that, you're like, they sign off and go sign on to somebody else. Um, I'd probably have a ton more podcast listeners if I like was like, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> I have, I've grown, I've grown, but like, I feel like I probably would have gotten much bigger if I like took some side and was like, <laughs> just maybe just started saying a bunch of crazy stuff. I don't know, but I can't, I, I can't do it. Like I would, I would struggle. I would struggle to sleep at night. It just, it isn't me. Um, <laughs> not worth, not worth the health consequences, right? Yeah. Yeah. I have a con. I, I was raised Catholic. I have all the Catholic guilt, on, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> come on, Aaron, don't do that. Um, but <laughs> you'll build your podcast slowly. Um, I, <laughs> my, I, I have to ask this question because this I found really amazing when I was kind of diving in. You know, you mentioned you know the the, the Amish community that like don't they don't necessarily trust modern medicine or they don't participate in preventive care like um, maybe the you know the the whiter population does. Um, but their life expectancy was it was always higher than ours for a very long time. Like the, the general population, when I said, when I mean like ours, not like we're a different species or something, but um, I was like really taken aback by that. Like with, and tell me if I'm wrong with like when ours, uh, when like regular, this sounds bad. How do I say this general population? We were like, we were expected to live till 47. They were like expected to live till early Mm seventies. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's wild. So, okay. So I have have two things to say. (laughs) So, um, so Amish generally don't use preventive medicine, right? And so like, they don't go for their yearly checkups, things like that, but they will use, like, they do use doctors and they do use medicine, right? And so like, if they, if they need a surgery for something, like they'll, they'll go do that, right? And so they, they do use modern medicine, but just not in the same sort of way that like you or I would use it probably. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And they, like, they, they don't um, like the, the preventative piece I think is really important. Right. And so like, I'm not going to go see my doctor if I'm healthy. Right. Like what, why would I, <laughs> right. Um, there, there's really no need. Right. So that, that preventative piece is, is really important there. Um, and then the other thing um, not related to my COVID work, um, but I did a, I did a, a paper on maternal health, um, looking at Amish women. I think I saw, I didn't entirely read it, but yeah, I did see that. Yeah. And so, so Amish women, um, so women in general, right. Research shows that like women who have no children and women who have lots of children essentially have shorter lifespans than women who have like two or three children. Right. And so like, there's, health risks, um, at, at both ends of the spectrum. Right. And like, like that two or three is, is sort of like the, the sweet spot <laughs> for, for longevity among women in general, but amongst the Amish and Amish sometimes have like really large families. Um, and so women who were having like 10 plus children were living just as long as women who had like two or three children. And it's wow. like, it's wild, right? Because it's very different than yeah. what we see in, in the larger population. And like, I don't know this for sure, but one of the things that that I wrote about in that paper is I suspect it has something to do with community support, 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because um, like when, when you, when, when Amish women have children and we, we read about this in the budget, right. When Amish women have children, like somebody from the community comes and helps them. Right. And so like they have a newborn in the house and they have other children. And so like, it might be a niece or it might be a neighbor, but somebody comes and stays with them and sort of helps them like do the things they normally do. Right. And that's not like, that's not lovely. Right. It's not like quote unquote normal for, for non-Amish people. Right. No, like if anything, we're like, you know, shun each other. Um, and I, but I agree with you. I don't think it's a good thing. I think that, um, and, and the other thing I was reading about was like their elder care, like here it's, it, it, I mean, it's terrible. Like people get like shoved away or like, you know, not if there's just, but they said that they, they maintain them in homes and right. That's, I feel like that's huge. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I was sort of alluding to, right. When I was talking about like social distancing and and people who live in sort of extended families, right. Within the Amish community, um, there's, there's like a thing called the Dottie house. And so uh, what that looks like is there's like the family home, right. And then there's a smaller house right next to it. And so like a family um, lives in the family home and then the parents live in the house right next door. Right. And it's like they're really close to each other. And sometimes they're even connected. Right. And so, like, the children take care of the parents as they age. Um, which I love that. Does, right. Which doesn't seem to happen in mainstream US society. No. <laughs> very, no. very different sorts of things. Yeah. 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 I mean, and I don't know if it, like, you know, because we're all, our work culture is different, you know, and yes. I think that probably, like, lots of people don't have time and legitimately don't have time because of their jobs and, Um, but, um, what about, I was, well, okay. So, you know, actually I just posted, posted a podcast with a researcher who was talking about like, you know, the number of steps we're supposed to take, Mm -hmm. um, to, you know, reduce disease and death, but the Amish also like their lifestyle really like agrarian active lifestyle and the food, like Mm -hmm. it's all home, home prepared, like prepared at home. Yeah. And so this is also interesting, right? And so when we look back historically, Amish were primarily farmers. If you look today, um, the farming has dwindled a lot and you actually have um, a a small percentage of Amish who are farmers. A lot of Amish now work outside the home. And I mean, part of that is based on like, how do you make a living farming? (laughs) Right. And so uh, being able to to maintain that sort of lifestyle in society today, it's hard. Um, and so a lot of people like just work outside the home and in other sorts of jobs. And so that has changed, right? Um, over the past, past decade or so. Um, and food is also an interesting one. When I was doing the, the paper on maternal health, um, some of the research out there has shown that like while Amish are eating this, this home cooked food, like they also enjoy things like butter and salt. (laughs) Right. And so, um, even though they might not be like eating out as much as non Amish people, um, food choices aren't necessarily super healthy. Right. And then that leads back to, well, if that's the case, right. Then, then what is it? Like, what, what is it that is like, allowing them their lifespan to be so long. Right? Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's 
an interesting question. <laughs> I mean, there's so much interest, uh, you know, in anti-aging and um, stuff like that. I just, so I was very intrigued by that. Um, right. But it, it could, maybe it is just the power of the community. It very well could be the social connectedness. Right. I mean, I, I think that that's an important piece. I mean, I'm sure there's other things too, but. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. Just, I think it makes a difference, right? Uh, absolutely. I, I, I do. I, I think it, um, it really does. I, and I think, um, I, I do think, I think, well, you know, they talked about the epidemic of loneliness and I know that there was some, um, well, some people, they're, they're, you know, it wasn't like, I, I guess an exact science or there was some, uh, research that went against that. Um, but I think maybe like the quality of our relationships, like our social capital, mm-hmm. um, I do think that matters. And a lot, I think a lot of people don't necessarily have that. And it sounds like this is a community that values that almost above of everything else. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, I just realized the time and I'm so sorry we went over, but this was such an interesting topic. Rachel, thank you so much for um, finding the time to do this podcast. And uh, it was really interesting. I look forward to posting it. Are you going on break now? I am. Yes. So I I really, I really enjoyed talking to you. Um, It was a lot of fun. Thank (laughs) you. We have finals week next week. And so we are, we are almost done. (laughs) (laughs) So all the students are busy and, you know, cramming away. Right. Yes. I remember that week. (laughs) You just, you take your test kids and then you just go have fun. You don't worry about it. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, Well, good luck with that and have a happy holiday to you and your family. Um, and definitely stay in touch, uh, you know, if, if, with any of the other research that you're working on, I'd love to, um, look, especially, you know, the expected death rate, um, that, or, you know, when you're comparing that excess death, um, to the general population, I'd be really interested in seeing that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. Well, and happy holidays to you and your family. All right. Thank you, Erin. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining in. A special thanks to Dr. Stein. I really enjoyed this podcast and conversation. Uh, You know, this podcast is a passion project. And while sometimes it feels tedious to edit the audio and make it sound okay and edit out any traffic noises or alien-like stomach growls that come from me, Um, you're hungry, Erin, you're hungry. I know, I get it. Um, it's just so fun and rewarding to chat with smart, interesting people and learn new things. Um, a dose of perspective broadening. That's my fuel. I love that. Uh, keeps me going. Um, anyhow, let me know what you thought via social media or email, any show ideas or topics or guests, let me know. I will try to accommodate as long as the topic isn't too, too out there. Sometimes I do out there topics too. I mean, it depends on my mood, I guess. Um, and just a note, since we talked a lot about, you know, misinformation um, affecting different people in different ways, um, I, it's, it's, I, you know, I write a lot about this topic. Um, and I think this is kind of an example where, you know, everybody's kind of like purging people from social media sites online. Um, I guess it stopped a little bit on Twitter with, um, Elon Musk, but you know, there's this blocking and I, you know, and I, I always compare that to kind of like trying to fight an endless battle because, you know, you could just 
set up shop anywhere online. And, and I don't think it's, it's necessarily healthy for a democracy. I think we have to learn how to um, kind of assess any information that's put in front of us. Uh, and that requires, you know, employing critical thinking and also listening in conversations, not just being on the defensive from the beginning of the conversation, but listening to what the other person is saying and, and maybe looking for the common ground or trying to find some way to resonate with that person. I, for me, that's always been kind of, you know, the art of public health communication. Um, and I don't think we do a good job of it. Um, and, and I always joke, and I can say this because I've been called a nerd um, most of my life, which is fine. I, I'm happy being a nerd. Um, but <laughs> I always say we shouldn't be banning nerds from the internet because you guys all, you guys have all seen Revenge of the Nerds, right? Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to do that. Um, <laughs> if you can help it. And, um, we just, I think we just need to get better at assessing any information that's put in front of us, whether you hear it from the person sitting next to you, you hear it when you're in the back of a van going on a shopping trip or you, you read it online. Uh, you can't control what people see or hear. It's just, it's impossible. It's a losing battle. Um, so and no one body should have a monopoly over what is misinformation and what isn't because, you know, there's always, you always have to consider ulterior motives and the way profit influences things and biases and pride. Um, you know, I, for example, I think the government should, I'm fine with them having a say in, well, that's misinformation, that's not, but they can't have a monopoly over that. That would kind of be like putting the boy who cries wolf in charge of verifying wolf sightings. <laughs> Right. I mean, yeah, he might be right some of the times, but hey, there's a history there. There's a history there. Um, we don't have to talk about those examples. You can just read a history book. Right. Weapons of mass destruction, that sort of thing. All right. I digress again. Let's get on to a better topic, which is a quote. My new tradition. Holiday quote here. Um, yeah, this quote is from A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Because who doesn't love the story of Scrooge and the spirit of Tiny Tim? So this quote is from one of the spirits that um, visits Scrooge. There are some upon this earth of yours, return the spirit, who lay claim to know us and who do their deeds of passion, pride, ill will, hatred, envy, bigotry, and selfishness in our name, who are as strange to us and all of our kith and kin as if they had never lived. Remember that and charge their doings on themselves, not us. Okay, guys, and just one more, <laughs> because, you know, on my website at bloomingwellness.com, where I write, I have a medical trivia section, like a health trivia section. So this one is about Tiny Tim. It's good trivia for your holiday parties, okay? What ailed Tiny Tim? In Dickens' A Christmas Carol, Bob Cratchit's son, Tiny Tim, is plagued with an unidentified illness that, if left untreated, will kill him in one year. He has a short stature, is crippled on one side of his body, and suffers from bouts of weakness. Yet, a cure was available, and Scrooge, at the end of the book, would pay for it. After reviewing medical books from the 1840s, doctors suggest that he would have received the diagnosis of asymmetric crippling disorder. His treatment plan would have included country air, fish oil, vitamin D, bracing the leg, and a mix of tonics that include sodium bicarbonate. 
Many doctors and medical historians speculate that Tiny Tim had renal tubular acidosis. If left untreated, it results in growth failure, osteomalacia, which leads to fractures, low potassium, which leads to progressive muscle weakness, kidney failure, and death. So there you go, guys. Some um, uplifting. <laughs> okay, well, it's holiday trivia, okay? So if you're at a holiday party and you feel stuck, you can just be like, hey, did you ever wonder what caused Tiny Tim's problems in the Christmas Carol? And maybe someone there will uh, have a chat with you. I don't know. All right, I'm going to sign off now. Uh, that was a pretty long ending. I hope you subscribe, join in next time, um, and, you know, have a good holiday season and hopefully a good start to 2023. All right, guys, till then, till then.